0: A short while ago, I was invited to an event where the psychologist, Harvard lecturer and thought leader Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar was giving a presentation. It provoked some really interesting thoughts, and he has been kind enough to accept an invitation to sit with me for a couple of hours and share with all of us the science behind what he calls positive psychology. Before we get into that discussion, though, let me introduce you to who he is. Tal, and he's instructed me to call him that probably because I'm going to butcher, (laughs) butcher his name, received both his bachelor's degree in philosophy and psychology, as well as his PhD in organizational behavior from Harvard University. He consults and lectures around the world to a multiplicity of different corporations, Fortune 500 companies, educational institutions, and also to the general public. Topics include leadership, education, ethics, happiness, self-esteem, resilience, goal-setting, and mindfulness. He's the author of a number of international bestsellers which have been translated into 25 different languages. Tell taught at Harvard where his classes on positive psychology and the psychology of leadership were amongst the most popular courses in the university's history. He currently teaches out of the ICH, which is a private educational institute in Israel. We had a great conversation and again, just like yesterday and probably just like tomorrow, go grab a pen and paper because you're going to want to take some notes. Here it is welcome to Future CEOs. It's so great to have you with us.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So tell us more about uh, positive psychology.
1: Positive psychology is the science of happiness. You know, Until very recently, the whole realm of happiness, of life flourishing, uh, of success has really been dominated by the self-help movement. And what we have in the self-help movement, uh, we have uh, you know, thousands of books coming out each year, uh, hundreds of seminars offered uh, each week. And While there is a lot of charisma and there's a lot of fun in many of these books and uh, seminars, there is very often little substance in the sense that they promise us the five steps to happiness or the three things uh, you need to do to become the great leader or the secret of the good life. Uh, whereas positive psychology, the science of happiness, what it does is it looks at the same material, but from a scientific perspective.
0: Now, this is a very important point because uh, the other stuff is very fluffy. It feels good, but it doesn't last. And so what, what the difference here is, and it's a key difference, is that it's, this is a scientific approach versus a, an idea that someone maybe created uh, when they were down and out and uh, felt like it worked for them and it can work for others.
1: Right, that that is the distinguishing characteristic uh, around positive psychology. It's all been uh, tested and researched, and rather than uh, over-promise and under-deliver, it under-promises and over-delivers in terms of techniques, tools, ideas that actually work, that actually can make a difference uh, in one's life, bringing, uh, in in, in a sense, uh, creating a bridge between the ivory tower, the, the academy, the university, the research, and Main Street, making it accessible to to businesses, uh, to, to families, and so on.
0: In a certain context, I can see positive psychology really hitting home. So maybe the housewife at home who has emptiness syndrome suddenly. But you've just mentioned business. Tell us a little bit more about uh, where the connection is w- between positive psychology and business.
1: Yeah. so the, um, the, there are many connections. The main connection, uh, as I see it, is about the relationship between... Uh, success and happiness. So many people in the business world and elsewhere uh, truly believe that more success will lead to more happiness. That is uh, very often the, the the driving force behind their, uh, their motivation to succeed because they believe that uh, attaining the next promotion or the next raise, that is what will make them happy. This is also how they very often raise their children. by by driving them, driving them to success because they believe that that is what will make them happier. It seems like
0: that's the mainstream message around the world anyway. I mean, that's how people market to us. That's how people deliver any kind of message on the back of this marketing machine, this marketing drive.
1: That's right. So you want to be happy, become successful. It's a universal message almost. The thing though is that the message is wrong because success doesn't lead to happiness. Yeah, it leads to a temporary spike in our levels of well-being a short-lived high. But very quickly, after we get that raise or after we get that promotion, we go back to exactly where we were before the raise, before the promotion.
0: And this is now scientific.
1: It is. And you know, I must say that this is also how I got into this uh, field of positive psychology, because I really believe that the more successful I become, the happier I'll be. It just didn't work uh, out that way. But the question then people ask is, Is there no relationship between uh, success and happiness? And the answer is no, there is. There is a strong uh, relationship between the two. Only it's the opposite of what most people think. In other words, it's not that success leads to happiness, but rather the other way around. Happiness leads to success. In other words, if I increase the levels of well-being in my company, in my organization, by a little bit you know by 2% even i can already see a significant increase in uh, productivity levels of my employees creativity levels teamwork improves significantly in other words the bottom line improves as a result in other words happiness pays sure. it's a good investment for for a company to um, to increase levels of well-being of its employees it's good for the employees, obviously. It's also good for the bottom line of the organization.
0: So I'm a CEO and, and I'm hearing you say this. Back it up with a little bit of data. You, do you have um, studies that have been done?
1: Uh, sure. Dozens, if not hundreds of studies have been done uh, on it. So for instance, um, what, what they did was they increased levels of well-being of uh, of employees and then uh, compared to a control group, they were able to solve problems better. Mm. This was done uh, for uh, doctors trying to to, to overcome uh, a patient 's illness, and this was also done for uh, uh, innovators, for entrepreneurs trying to come up with a new idea for a business. You improve, you increase positive emotions, you increase uh, innovation and creativity. The same with engagement, you know one of the biggest problems that companies are facing now in South Africa and around the world. Is low levels of engagement.
0: I've read about this and um, we've got massive massive amounts of people who aren't engaged in the workplace. All
1: right. And 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 just think about the cost of uh, of lack of engagement. So yeah, so they they come in and they and they swipe their card as they come in, but but they're disengaged, they're not really there. Mm. So in terms of productivity, you're losing out a lot and the, and, and we're talking hours each day of uh, employees being disengaged. Well, we know that if we increase levels uh, of uh, of well-being even by a little bit, employees immediately become uh, more engaged, more present.
0: How, how do you go about doing this now? So, so let's move the conversation on a little bit, and let, let's talk about the mechanisms that, or at least certainly some of the touch points that um, you're talking about in, in positive psychology.
1: Right, so one example revolves around the idea of, uh, of appreciation. So if um, uh, Teresa Amabile, who's a Harvard Business School professor, Uh, has done research showing that companies in which employees appreciate the progress that they made. So, for example, at the end of each day, write down one thing that you made progress on. It could be I wrote a report. It could be uh, I had a a productive meeting with a colleague. It could be I made a sale. But anything, even small, even in the most difficult uh, of days, you can always find some progress there that you made. Employees that do that on a regular basis ideally every day but even once a week or actually uh, uh, their job satisfaction goes up they're happier uh, at work moreover uh, they're more productive and more creative just as a result of uh, in a sense counting uh, in a sense counting their blessings uh, appreciating where they've made progress
0: so we're talking about us appreciating what we have been able to accomplish versus appreciation shown by the organization or is there is there uh, Two sides to this coin?
1: Yeah, absolutely two sides. Um, when we appreciate what we have done, we, we make progress. And obviously, when we're appreciated, we, uh, we feel a lot better uh, about it. Uh, however, it's not just um, uh, appreciation as a, you know, a, a blank statement. Mm. There are also different kinds of appreciation. So one of the things that we do know, and there's a lot of research on that, is that when we identify our strengths... The things that, that we're good at or the things that we're passionate about and that give us strength. When we identify our strength, we perform uh, a lot better. If we have a manager or a colleague who sees those strengths in us, in other words, who appreciates mm. what we're good at, we perform a lot better.
0: In one of your slides, you had this overlap. Or Mr. I don't know if you've heard of the hedgehog concept.
1: Sure. Collins.
0: Yes. Uh, and so he has this little, um, these three circles that overlap and create this center element. You, you have something similar, two circles. Can you talk us through that?
1: In order to identify our strength, there are two uh, big questions that we need to ask. The first question is the straightforward strength question, which is, uh, what are my strengths? In other words, what am I good at? Uh, Is it strategic thinking, is it crunching numbers, Uh, is it uh, uh, running group meetings, is it speaking in front of a large audience, Uh, or or is it perhaps being one-on-one with the person really listening? What are my strengths, what am I good at? The second question, which is no less important, is what gives me strength? In other words, what energizes me? What am I passionate about? And it could be strategic thinking, it could be uh, being in small groups if I'm an introvert or being uh, in front of a large audience, or it could be uh, crunching numbers or writing. What, what, what gives me strength? What energizes me? The first type of strength, what are my strengths, is related to performance. These are the areas where I contribute the most uh, to the organization. This is where I, where, where I do well.
0: Yeah, so it's not just an idea. I, I am strong in this area, and I'm convinced that I'm strong in this area. It's actually something that I can measure as well.
1: It's, it's absolutely measurable. It's where I perform uh, at my best, where I contribute the most. The second type of strength is what, uh, what I've come to call passion strengths. This is what I'm passionate about, what, I, what, what energizes me, what drives me. The first one is more uh, about the external, affecting the external evi- environment. The second is more about the internal, uh, how I feel about what I do. If I'm able to find the overlap between the two, in other words, find things that I'm both good at, that are my strengths, and that give me strength, that energize me. If I'm able to find those things, this is where I am at my best. This is my zone of peak uh, potential.
0: Mm, Okay. Uh, And pull then that peak potential element back to the positive psychology, please? Yes.
1: So what we find is that people who who function at their uh, peak potential are a happier, which is no big surprise, uh, but also perform a lot better. They, uh, they, they bring a lot more value to their organization. Now, th- th- this is important because if you are in the Gallup organization that does a lot of work around strength, uh, asked 1.1 million people around the world, what's more important for you? To focus on your weaknesses or focus on your strengths? One point one million people in sixty three countries, including South Africa, in every country where they asked this question, the overwhelming majority of people said it's more important for us to focus on our weaknesses
0: which seems logical because that's where we may be dropping the ball
1: uh, exactly dropping the ball that's where we got the most bang for the buck if mm. we if we improve on our weaknesses well. It turns out that most people were wrong okay uh, well, it actually turns out that the minority the minority that said uh, strength is more important to focus on. They were disproportionately more successful. Mm. Now, you know, this, this result merely shows a correlation. So they took it a step further and they actually taught people how to focus uh, more on their strength. And again, one of the ways to teach people is by asking them the two questions, what are your strengths and what gives you strength? And when people identify their strength and focus on them, they actually become more successful and we can do that as as managers in organizations we can ask these questions first and foremost of ourselves and then of other people our our uh, colleagues our employees and companies uh, uh, business units that do that actually become more successful
0: it seems fairly logical i don't know why more people aren't doing it in any kind of team what do you do you bring in a specialist in a particular kind of area and that's the function that he fulfills but we're not doing it in organizations, the way that we really should be doing it?
1: Yeah, we're, we're not doing it and we learn not to do it at a very early age. I mean, if you think about uh, other areas, sports, for example, you know, you would never bring uh, a person, let's say in, in basketball, who's uh, one meter 70 and a good playmaker and put them as, as the center because you need someone who's taller, who's, who's, who's stronger and that, you know, in sports, you wouldn't do it. But in school, we do. We emphasize weaknesses because if I'm poor in math but very good in English, very often English will be neglected because I'm already good at that. Whereas math, my weakness, that will be emphasized. And we then import this approach to the workplace as well. And rather than focusing and asking people, what are your strengths? We we, we send them for the equivalent of remedial classes. Okay, so you're not good with people, but I want you to be a manager and to manage people and therefore, um, I, I send you to emotional intelligence seminars. And I'm not negating the value of that. We do need to work on our weaknesses as well. However, first and foremost, we need to emphasize uh, our strengths. You know, I, I see this uh, playing out a lot. I do a lot of uh, consulting for high tech companies. And what we see in high tech companies is that many of the managers got to becoming uh, managers because they were great programmers. You know, they, they they were very good with numbers, very good with uh, on on the computer, and then they were promoted, but they have no inclination, no actually no real deep desire to to manage people, other than the fact that they will make a lot more money, yeah. which is obviously an incentive. Um, other than the fact that people say to them, well, you ought to now become a manager, you know, because you have been a a, a programmer for long enough.
0: But that is not their strength. Well, uh, the role changes. Uh, you move from very technical to being a lot more people-orientated, maybe leadership-orientated. And uh, the functional um, triggers that you relied on before change. Please go on. You're the, you're the expert, of course.
1: Yeah, so, so th- this is exactly what happens. And uh, you move from your expertise and, and where you really thrived as a technical um, expert you move on to having to manage uh, people, where you feel less less comfortable. And you know the, the, there are more and more companies today who are realizing that and are creating career paths which look very different from the traditional career path. So a traditional career path would be you're an operator, you work on, you actually write code or whatever it is, and then you 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 do well there, and then you move away from writing code, and you, you move over to managing other people who write code. Um, but more and more companies are seeing that that may not be the right career trajectory for the individual or for the company. And they create places or the path where you can be promoted, um, you can be uh, compensated for continuing to do what you do at a higher level. So this is one, one way to go about it. But there's another way. So let's say you, know, you really do want to become a manager, but your strength is as a, um, on, on the technical front. What do you do about that? What you do is that yes you work on your weaknesses and your weakness may be working with people at the same time you do not neglect your strengths so you find time you know every day or you know a few hours a week to continue engaging in what you do well uh, you continue being involved in the nitty-gritties of the of the project if necessary if that means you also get to exercise your strength so you don't need to exercise your strength you know 24/7 uh, but at least some part of the day need to be dedicated to what you're good at and to what energizes you, to what gives you strength.
0: I think what often happens with us is that we feel we need to exercise our strengths in a mutually exclusive kind of uh, format, where it's always our strength, always what um, we want to be doing, but that's not really the reality, is it?
1: You know, in a perfect world, we'd always be exercising our strengths and uh, we'd always be happy too. Um, But, you know, this world is not perfect and we're not always happy. In fact, sometimes all of us experience sadness and and disappointment and and anger and frustration. And at work as well, you know, very often we have to, to, to engage in our weaknesses because if I'm a manager and I want to manage, then I have to do many different things. Uh, such as work with people, which may or may not be my strength, such as know about the technical aspects of the work because I'm managing it, which may or may not be my strength. I also have to learn how to crunch numbers and to um, uh, think uh, strategically, which may or may not be my strength. Again, in a perfect world, we'd be engaging in our strength all the time. Our world is not perfect, and uh, which is why we need to also, not exclusively, but also... Uh, manage our weaknesses. This is what Peter Drucker, you know, considered the father of modern management studies. This is what he had. You said he said, focus on your strengths and manage your weaknesses. And we we can uh, draw an analogy once again from sports. I mean, think of a of a football player, you know, who's uh, you know has a great kick but is very slow.
0: Are, are you are you now talking American football or? Are I know, talking... I'm, I'm talking real football oh, oh, here. Oh, excellent, yes. excellent. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, and, you know, so, so this person is, you know, is, is a great kicker, but he's slow. So you, you don't need to make this person, you know, the next uh, Ossian Bolt, the, the fastest uh, man on earth. Mm. Um, but you do need to improve their speed so that they can get into a position to exercise their strength, which is kicking. So manage it to the point where it doesn't prevent you from exercising your strength. Take this analogy once again to the, to the business realm, um, going back to our um, technical expert. They don't need to become you know, a Mother Teresa, uh, uh, the, the world's greatest uh, emotional, uh, intelligent expert, but they need to be able to uh, manage people well enough so that it doesn't prevent them from exercising their technical genius. Mm, no,
0: lovely. Let's pull back a little bit. I think we've almost digressed a little bit to a very um, interesting topic, but away from the positive psychology element that you are, are representing here. Just tell us a little bit more, please. Yes,
1: yeah, so uh, positive psychology focuses on all those elements uh, at work or at home that can contribute to, uh, to life flourishing, uh, to being happier. So... One of the things that I hear most often from organizations that, that, that invite me in as, as a consultant is the is about the issue of stress. It's 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 a huge issue in, in South Africa, in the United States, in China, even in Australia. Uh, people are, are, are really um, are, are really stressed. You know there is what uh, you know that the comedian Ellen DeGeneres uh, talks about uh, too busy disorder TBD. Uh, as being a, really a pandemic, you know, worldwide uh, issue. Uh, and what, what this uh, stress means is that people are, are, are getting sick more often. It also, um, again, this is research coming out of Harvard Business School, it really hurts creativity uh, when, when people are stressed. And so what do you do with it? And what positive psychologists have found in, in studying stress is that um, actually stress in and of itself is not a problem. In fact, in and of itself, stress can be good for us. It can make us stronger, more resilient, even happier in the long term. Think of the, the analogy, you know, you go to the gym and you lift weights. What are you doing to your muscles? You're, you're actually stressing them. Yeah, I'm
0: stressing them to the point where they are going to be impacted in a certain kind of way so that they can
1: grow. Exactly. So, And, and, and you're stressing them and they grow. You become stronger. You become healthier uh, in the long term. The problem in the gym when you work out, and you're stressing your muscles, begins when you're stressing them, and then you're stressing them again, and five minutes later you lift even more weights, mm. and on and on. That's when you get injured. That's when you get weaker rather than stronger. The problem then is not the stress itself. The problem is the lack of recovery. Yeah, rec- recovery is everything, isn't it? It's everything in the gym, and it's everything in the workplace. You know, so the um, Jim Lor and Tony Schwartz uh, talk about the corporate athletes. And they actually compare our uh, experiences uh, on the field or in the gym to our experiences in in the office or on the the manufacturing floor. And what we see is what the happiest, healthiest, and most successful people in business do is that they experience as much stress as, as everyone else. The difference is that they also punctuate that stress with periods of recovery. So just like you would take a day off from the gym, to allow your muscles to recover, they take a a, a day off a week. Or um, they also have mini-recoveries, such as every two hours or so to take 10 to 15 minutes for a a coffee break or a time to just breathe deeply or meditate. Or they go to the gym on a regular basis, which is a great form of recovery. Or um, they they have a, a nice, quiet dinner with their friends or family and with an emphasis on nice and quiet, not with their phone on at the same time, and uh, being on, on email at the same time, because that's just additional stress, that's not recovery. Or taking a vacation once in a while, you know, whether it's a week or, or two weeks off uh, twice a year, that is a very good investment. That contributes actually, not just to our uh, success, also to our happiness.
0: The point that you make with going and having dinner with us your phone on and to your without emails coming through just give us a little bit more in terms of that I, I i remember i asked you at the event that we were at uh whether you sing what was it uh, i forget the yeah. artist w-
1: w- whether the uh, whitney houston whitney
0: houston yeah. yes if, if right. you yes. you know the words it's, it's a song I, you i you know like, the but
1: words but uh yeah you're not gonna hear me sing certainly not uh on air <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, yeah, yeah. Please, just uh, to our listeners, um, explain what you yeah. uh, explained then, please.
1: Good. So there was uh, research done by uh, Daniel Kahneman, a professor at Princeton, Nobel Prize winner in economics, on trying to evaluate the emotional experiences of professional women, women who are working, whether it was in the United States or in Europe. Uh, the same applies, though, uh, in uh, South Africa, and the same applies to men as well. So they wanted to understand the emotional experiences of women when they were at work, when they were at home, when they were with their partner, when they were uh, with their kids, when they were shopping, when they were hanging out with their best friend, whatever they were doing. The most surprising result of this study was that these women did not particularly enjoy spending time with their kids. And this was, you know, this was a surprising finding for Kahneman and his colleagues. So they, they delved uh, deeper to understand what was going on here. And it wasn't that these women did not love their kids. In fact, for most of these women, the kids were the most important, meaningful part of their lives. What was it then? It was that when, when these women were with their kids, they were not really with their kids. Meaning they were physically there, but at the same time they were on the phone uh, with a friend, or uh, emailing colleagues, or uh, thinking about what they did earlier or what they have to do later. So while they were physically there, um, they were not really there. They were all over the place, literally.
0: Present in mind, uh, or rather in body, exactly. not in mind. Though.
1: Present in 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 body, absent in mind. Mm. And the um, the thing they could have really enjoyed uh, being on the phone with a, with a friend or working. Or being with their kids if they had done these things individually, when, but when all these things came together, it was too much of a good thing, and quantity of experiences affected quality of life. And you can think of an analogy. so let's say you're listening to your favorite piece of music, and you know if, you, if, if you're listening if your favorite piece of music is like mine, you're listening to Whitney Houston's and "I will always love you." Uh, my favorite song, and you're listening to whatever your favorite song is with your eyes closed and focused. Uh, and after it's over, you're asked to rate it on a scale of one to ten. And uh, it's your favorite song by definition. You give it a ten. Uh, and then you're asked to listen to your second most favorite piece of music. And if your second most favorite is like mine, you're listening to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. You know, it's the pa 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 pa. And uh, you're listening and focused with your eyes closed, and then you rate it on a scale of one to ten. And you, you, you give it a, a nine and a half. You know, it's not quiet and I will always love you, but Beethoven is pretty good, nevertheless. And then for your optimal experience, what you do is you play these two pieces of music together. And what do you get? You get a nineteen and a half. and a half? No, you get, you get noise, cacophony. But that's modern life for you. You know, this is what modern life is like. So many people ask me and say, tell, tell me, and they ask about themselves, well, why aren't I happy? Uh, I mean, I have all these wonderful things in my life. I have uh, um, uh, work that I like and and family and friends uh, that I enjoy spending time with. And uh, and I have all these hobbies and they list their hobbies. Why aren't I happy? And my answer is that you're not happy for the exact same reason that you would not be happy listening to Whitney Houston and Beethoven simultaneously. Too much of a good thing. And what we need to do, whether it's personally or, or professionally, we need to simplify And that means not even radically simplify, doing it in the little things, such as switching off the phone when we get home in the evening and spending quality time with our family or friends. It means um, when I'm thinking strategy or writing a report, switching off the phone and um, uh, switching off email and really focusing on what I'm doing. Get rid of those
0: notifications because it's going to pull your mind away and create that chaos, the two songs. Absolutely, it
1: creates that chaos. And there's research in the workplace showing that This is out of London um, University, that when we have our email on or other distractions, whether it's phone, while we're doing other work that requires concentration, it's the equivalent of losing 10 IQ points. 10 IQ points is the equivalent of uh, not sleeping for 36 hours.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't think I can even think about what I would be like not sleeping
1: for 36 hours. Right. Well, that's 10 IQ points less. So we pay a very high price uh, when we're in the workplace, um, when we have all these distractions. We think we're getting more done because we're 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 doing this and that and this multitasking, uh, but we're actually paying a high price. Our organization is paying a high price. Now, this this doesn't mean that we should or can eliminate multitasking. It's necessary to do at times, but what it does mean is that we need to find what I've come to call islands of sanity. Islands of sanity throughout the day when we're just focusing on one thing, whether it's just the meeting we're at or whether it's uh, uh, just the emails that we're doing or just the the report that we're writing. And what an ex-colleague of mine from Harvard Business School, Leslie Perlow, has shown is that... um, People who have that on a regular basis, even one to two hours a day of quiet, focused time, um, their um, job satisfaction goes up as well as their uh, productivity, their output, Mm. their performance.
0: So what we've done is we've spoken about simplification. We've spoken about focusing on our strengths. What else can we do to have this positive psychology that you're speaking about?
1: Right, so one of the... Most interesting findings over the last well, couple of decades already is the connection between mind and body. So what we know today is that regular physical exercise. And when I'm talking regular physical exercise, I'm not talking becoming, uh, uh, about becoming an Iron Man. Sure. So even 30 minutes, three times a week of physical exercise. It could be walking, or jogging, or playing uh, uh, football, or, or dancing. You're a good squash player. So, I mean, perhaps for you, it's squash. uh, Playing squash, playing tennis, whatever. Whatever um, works for you, whatever is fun for you. Um, 30 minutes, three times a week, has the same effect on our psychological well-being as our most powerful psychiatric medication. Uh, In fact, it works in the same way. It releases uh, norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine. These are your feel-good chemicals in the brain. Mm. And... uh, It helps deal with depression, anxiety, it also helps people who are doing fine simply become happier. And what we know that if we increase positive emotions, if we become happier, we also become more productive, creative and and better team players. So it also contributes to the bottom line of the organization. More and more companies are realizing now that uh, encouraging their employees to exercise um, actually contributes to the organizational success. We concentrate better, we focus better. Uh, after we exercise.
0: There's also a, a number of studies that have been done uh, about how if we place ourselves into certain kinds of positions, power poses, uh, that will have an influence on our mental disposition, on our perhaps our positivity as well. You mentioned this a little bit.
1: Yes. Now, there's, a, there's a wonderful book that came out recently called um, The As If Principle. It's by a uh, a psychologist, a British psychologist by the name of Richard Wiseman, uh, who lives up to his name. He, he, he truly is a wise man. And um, what, what, he, what he has uh, shown through a lot of research, his own and others, is that very often acting as if were something brings us to, to feeling, to experiencing, to being that. So for example, uh, if I um, sit up straight in, in, a, in a confident posture, that will actually have a physiological effect on me. It will actually uh, release chemicals, hormones, uh, testosterone, that will make me feel more assertive and more confident. Uh, If I sit in a relaxed manner, you know, with my shoulders, back, or leaning, I will actually feel calmer. It will actually reduce the, the amount of cortisol in my system. Cortisol is the stress hormone. So very often acting as if Um, I am confident or calm will make me that way. In fact, uh, there was research done in Harvard Business School that showed that um, uh, people who before an interview assumed what Professor Amy Cuddy calls a power pose, again, sitting proudly or or sitting in a a comfortable manner, actually will make me interview better. It will make me uh, more confident in the interview, Uh, I'll um, uh, actually come across and feel more authentic and more real. It will increase the likelihood of me getting the job after.
0: During the presentation uh, that I attended, you mentioned a variation of fake it till you make it. Give us that variation.
1: Yes, so Amy Cuddy talks about rather than fake it till you make it, fake it till you become it.
0: Okay, all right. Yeah. There's a key difference there. Uh I don't like fake it till you make it, I must admit. But when you say fake it till you become it, that adds another dimension to it.
1: Yes. The, uh, the reason is, you see, we all have within us uh, the ability to act confidently and the ability to act uh, meekly. We all have in us the the experience. And we remember it where we felt, you know, strong and confident and, and big. And at other times we felt a uh, uh, lack of confidence and, and, and small. So this self, either the confident or, or or the meek, these two selves are parts of who we are. We have the potential for both. Every person has the potential for both. And the question is, what self do we bring out in what situation? And it's very often through faking that behavior that we can bring out the, the stronger self uh, in us, become that self that is, that is part of who we are, It's real, it's there, but we bring it out, we emphasize, we focus on it through our behaviors.
0: So although we can behave in a certain way and it will bring something out, uh, what happens if we don't believe that we actually are or can be what um, we're trying to fake?
1: We benefit most when there is congruence, when there is an overlap between our beliefs and our behaviors. So if I believe that I'm capable, that I can do well, and I behave uh, in, a, in, in an assertive, capable uh, way, then I'm much more likely to to experience it, to live that. If there is a disconnect between my internal beliefs and the way I behave, then initially there will be discomfort, uh, what psychologists call cognitive dissonance. Um, however, over time, if I persist with a behavior, if I continue to, in a sense, fake it, Ultimately, if I persist, I become it. So the key, except for extreme, uh, extreme situations, when there is very, really very low levels of belief that, that is the, 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 um, the result of, uh, or of abuse or of ongoing kind of trauma. trauma uh, except for in extreme situations, it is usually possible to raise levels of self-esteem, to increase levels of happiness by behaving as if. Mm, okay. But it takes persistence.
0: Okay, lovely. Uh, Tell what is your definition of happiness?
1: There are many definitions of happiness, and many people say you know, that happiness is like beauty. You basically know it when you see it or experience it. Um, my definition is that happiness comprises two components, meaning and pleasure. So, for example, if I'm working in a place where overall what I do uh, provides me with a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, it's important, it's significant to me, And at the same time, overall, with with the regular ups and downs, but overall I enjoy what I do, experience pleasure there, then I'm happy in the workplace. So it's the combination of meaning and pleasure.
0: What is the appetite for these kind of programs on an executive level? You know, authentic appetite, real appetite.
1: In the past, the appetite for for happiness or for well-being programs uh, came during good times. When a company was doing well, then it brought in a a speaker or a program in order to provide the employees with perks because we're doing well. Um, Today, things have changed. Why? Because more and more managers, um, more and more organizations are realizing the bottom line impact of, uh, of these programs, of the well-being, wellness, uh, happiness-inducing programs, they realize that it's, it's an important investment in good times as well as in difficult times, that when you invest in um, the well-being of your employees, um, you, um, you get a lot back in terms of productivity, creativity, in terms of the bottom line. Yeah,
0: I mean, if I've got a 1,000 employees... And you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier the statistics where if I just increase their engagement by a percentage point or two, we're going to get a a really good increase across the organisation as a result of
1: Yes, what you find, uh, especially today when people's uh, demands from the workplace are changing, uh, what you find is that a small increase in engagement, uh, a small increase in job satisfaction Yields remarkable results. Uh, also, people are less likely to leave, so turnover is, uh, is lower um, when, when you improve well-being.
0: So a lot of people seem to be talking happiness and teaching happiness, but it almost seems like we're dismissing authentic feelings, the ability to have valid emotions. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit more? You
1: know, so, so let me share with you um, an experience that I had the first year when I taught a class on positive psychology. So I was having lunch one day, and a student who wasn't taking my class came over and said, May I join you? And I said, Sure. So we sat down and uh, started chatting. And then he said, Tal, you know, I hear you're teaching a class on happiness. And I said, Yeah, that's right. And he said, you know, My roommates are, uh, are in your class. And I said, That's wonderful. And then he said, But you know, Tal, now that you're teaching this class, you've got to watch out. And I said, what? And he said, Tal, you've got to be careful. And I said, why? And he said, because if I see you unhappy, I'll tell my roommates. Okay. And, uh, and I actually used that the following day in class. And I told my students, I said to them, you know, the last thing in the world that I want you to, to think is that I am always happy, or that you, by the end of the semester, will experience a constant high. Because there, there are only two kinds of people. Who do not experience painful emotions such as sadness or anger or envy uh, or or, or disappointment or anxiety? Two kinds of people. They are first the psychopaths and second, dead people. So, you know, if we experience painful emotions at times, it's actually a good sign.
0: It seems to be a very (laughs) very good sign.
1: Yeah. So, um, and, and, The problem in today's culture is that so many of us believe that uh, a happy life or the good life is a life devoid of painful emotions. Um, That couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, In fact, this belief is one of the major causes of unhappiness in the world. Because if I don't give myself the permission to be human, the permission to experience these painful emotions at times, these emotions only intensify. Uh, the more I say to myself, well, I shouldn't be experiencing anxiety and, uh, and or, or the sadness is bad, the anxiety and the sadness will only intensify. I, I've written a book called The Pursuit of Perfect, which is about the permission to be human and how important that is uh, for, um, for leading a full and fulfilling life. And we also see it playing out in organizations. So we actually see that, for instance, uh, managers... Um, who don't give themselves the permission to be human, who say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the manager, I shouldn't be uh, weak. Or I'm the manager, uh, you know, I should be able to keep my calm uh, at all times and not feel angry. Um, they actually become angry more often. They actually um, um, become less confident because they suppress natural, real emotions and it's when we give ourselves the permission to be human. And again, permission to be human doesn't mean um, uh, becoming angry with our employees and screaming. It means having a place, a space in our life where we can experience these emotions, whether it's by ourselves uh, writing about these emotions or having a, a close friend or a family member or a colleague whom we trust and we can talk to about our emotions. Having, having a, a place where we can, we can let out, allow these emotions to flow through us. We become much better managers. We become much better people. We become much happier when we give ourselves the permission to be human.
0: When you're in a corporate environment and you're doing some of your training, I'm sure you've encountered that some teams don't like to be vulnerable. They don't like to show weakness. How do you deal with this?
1: Right. Um, One of the most important things that a manager can do for the long-term success of uh, their uh, uh, group, for the organization, is to create what Professor Amy Edmondson from Harvard University calls psychological safety. Create an environment where people feel that it's, it's okay to fail, where people feel that it's okay uh, to take risks and to, and, and to open up. It's in these organizations that you find the most learning takes place. Uh, these are the most innovative uh, organizations. These are also the best places to work. All these are critical for a successful 21st century company. So, to summarize, there are many things that um, positive psychology um, c- can tell us about increasing levels of well-being and, as a result, uh, improving uh, performance in an organization. Uh, things such as focus on your strength, focus on the strength of those uh, you work with. Um, remember to to appreciate, not to take for granted, the progress that you have made uh, during the day. You know. My, uh, My favorite word in English is the word appreciate. That has two meanings. One is to say thank you for something and the second meaning is to grow in value. And the two meanings are connected because when you appreciate the good, the good appreciates. So when I appreciate the good in my organization or in my employee or in myself, I will have more of it. Um, Positive psychology also um, has shown us that stress is not really a problem that the problem is lack of recovery. So if we can punctuate our crazy busy days with, with short recoveries, if we can get a good night's sleep or take a one day off uh, a week, we'll uh, not just become happier, we'll, we'll become a lot more productive, creative. Um, our output will increase. And, um, and, and, and finally what positive psychology has also shown us is the connection between mind and body. And that is, if we exercise, uh, if we exercise regularly, we can, um, uh, we do become more creative, more productive, uh, as well as as well as happier. And finally, while changing our state of mind is important, very often we can do that by changing our behaviors by acting as if. And if we do it on a consistent uh, basis, if we persist with this form of behavior, confident, calm, happy behavior, uh, over time we will fake it until we become it.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, It's been a great pleasure to have you uh, with us and we so appreciate you adding to our knowledge uh, and our
1: wisdom. Thank you, Gareth. It's a real privilege.
0: If you would like to make contact with Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, you can find his contact details on the podcast page on our website. I'm Gareth Armstrong, your host. Thanks for joining us today.